Hey guys, this is Emma, Vivo Barefoot's Head of Sustainability, and I f***ing hate the word sustainability. Join me as I talk to a whole bunch of people way smarter than me about how we're all going to make regeneration the new normal. Hey guys, and welcome to the Vivo Barefoot Regeneration broadcast. Our guest today has had over 2 million views on his TED Talk about looking to the genius of nature in architecture. Michael Pollan is a leader in regenerative design, and many people will know him as the brains behind the Eden Project and the Sahara Forest Project. After months of listening to our innovation guy at Vivo Barefoot talk about how much he worshipped you, we finally met you for lunch, and he ended up being far too nervous to talk to you, but you've become part of the family, and since then, you've been a huge part of building our new business strategy inspiring us all to look to nature and consider regenerative and restorative solutions in everything that we do. So let's talk about that. I think at a small scale, we've proved that regenerative design and the circular economy is technically achievable and scientifically sustainable. So how do you think we can look towards regenerative design for the future past coronavirus and how it can help prevent future crises? Well, I think COVID-19 is, is really going to force us to, to rethink our relationship with the, the rest of the living world. And you know, we know that um, pandemics are going to become more uh, frequent with um, climate change as we're increasingly disrupting ecosystems. And if we're really going to be serious about addressing that, we, we need to change the way we relate to the rest of the living world and, and stop looking at nature as something to be plundered or conquered. Uh, and that's a really outdated mindset. And so it's it's time to, to start thinking about nature in a new way, about looking at it as, as actually a whole series of life support systems into which we need to integrate ourselves. And that may mean some fairly profound changes. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of evidence to suggest that um, more and more of these diseases are coming um, from uh, livestock farming and from disrupting ecosystems. And so... It may be also about changing our diet and eating really substantially less meat. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting you talk about some of the discussion that's happening at the moment around whether or not this particular crisis had anything to do with our exploitation on nature. Do you believe what's being said and, and, and how do you think that it might have more to do with nature than perhaps just you know, the meat making its way on, onto, a, onto a market in Asia? Uh, well, it's probably a bit early to say um, for, for this one specifically, uh, but you know, l- looking back at some of the other um, epidemics that didn't make, make it all the way through to full-blown pandemics, um, we know that a lot of those were zoonotic, you know, they came from animals. If, we, if we're going to prevent that happening again, uh, we, we really need to, uh, I think, restore nature on a, on a massive scale and uh, uh, transform uh, the way we make things and the way we um, conduct agriculture. I think um, you know there's a good case for moving quite a bit of agriculture indoors into um, urban farming for, and I'm just talking about plants here, changing the way we produce the small amount of meat that perhaps some people will still want to eat into a, a much fairer, more nature-based uh, way of uh, producing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting when we talk about solutions, I think, because one of the things I've always admired about you is that you speak about a future that 
isn't really there yet and you're kind of creating and helping people visualize this wonderful almost utopian future through your architecture and your designs what part do you think that that plays in helping people imagine and really put into action you know the creation of this new world that we need to have after all of this and and i guess the question is what is regenerative design that a lot of people you know know what that is really and and how do you apply that to your you know your vision for the future yeah okay so i mean the simple way of framing regenerative design is it's a, it's about striving for a, a positive impact in everything we do up until now um, most of the stuff we've done and, and this is very much part of the sustainability paradigm it's really been about uh, trying to mitigate negatives and i think it's increasingly obvious that that's not a particularly inspiring vision i mean given the choice who would consciously want to be part of a degenerative cycle but that's what sustainability is really it's it's just to a greater or lesser extent a degenerative way of living and we know that one way or another we all have to individually and as companies and as countries shift towards a regenerative way of operating in which we strive to have a positive impact in everything we do and that's that's potentially quite transformative to architecture you know it changes the way we think about um, cities, buildings, and the materials we use. And I think it's, it's very useful to start from a, a systems perspective. And so, you know, if you start at the level of a planet, James Lovelock with his Gaia theory, he argued pretty persuasively that the Earth has evolved into a, an incredibly complex self-regulating system. And it's like a, a sort of nested set of systems at lots of different scales. So from the scale of a planet down to regions, down to ecosystems, and even um, as individual organisms, we know now that humans are, are not just a single species. Uh, our human cells are actually outnumbered 10 to 1 by microbial cells. So really, we are ourselves ecosystems. We're not just individuals. And we're... Um, completely tied into and, and dependent on those broader systems, which we increasingly need to see continuously as part of our health. Our health is indivisible from planetary health. So if we, if we start to design from that perspective and, and try to uh, work out how to integrate ourselves and cities and buildings into those broader systems, it starts to imply a whole new discipline about how resources flow through those systems. We need to shift from linear to cyclical ways. And it also implies a very di different discipline about the materials we use. Uh, it's gonna move us towards more and more materials that are actually grown rather than mined or quarried or, or synthesized. And those those grown materials, increasingly we're going to want to use materials that are actually grown from atmospheric carbon. Now, timber is a fairly obvious example of that. And there are some other really interesting ones as well. And if we do more of that, if we use more materials made from atmospheric carbon in our buildings, then we're effectively taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And, and that way, uh, every building we create could have a positive impact, not just on the atmosphere, but on our, our ecosystems as well. Wow, I always feel so uneducated when I talk to you. <laughs> um, do you feel like, you know, kind of in typical cynical me fashion, I'm going to ask the question, do you feel like the concept of regenerative design and what you've just described then 
is there to be exploited? And are you seeing people exploit it now? And, and I guess the, the follow-up question is, how do we overcome that? And how do we get people genuinely coming up with new innovative solutions, not kind of exploiting existing ways of talking about things like, you know, cutting down forests to make buildings? Well, I think, I think there's, a, there's a key difference between a, a regenerative approach and an extractive approach. So you could use timber in both ways. You know, if you, if you just cut down a forest and, and use that to build with, then that's clearly an extractive approach. If you cut down a forest that is carefully managed and you replant more uh, than you, you actually use, then that's a, a rege- regenerative approach. And while that timber is growing, it's, it's providing habitats for a whole load of, of ecosystems and delivering a whole series of, of benefits. Well, it specifically must not be an exploitative approach. Um, a, a truly regenerative approach has to deliver a whole range of benefits. Absolutely. And since your TED talk came out, what role do you think that, um, you know, sh- sharing the message, spreading the message in this way and kind of almost taking a subject that's incredibly complicated and very scientific and very mathematical um, and kind of making it digestible to more and more people and obviously, how do we redesign the future in a better way? Well, I mean, it's taken quite a long time. Uh, so my TED Talk was, um, I don't know, it's like eight years ago now. And, and I thought that we were on the cusp then of, of really um, shifting towards biologically inspired ways of doing things and a fully regenerative approach. And um, it's only recently that uh, interest is, is growing steadily in that area. Um, but I think now the use of the term regenerative is, is growing exponentially. I've found more and more people referring to that, more and more companies wanting to be regenerative companies. And I, I guess a lot of people and a lot of companies are now asking themselves more searching questions about what's their long-term purpose. And very few, hardly any companies would seriously say they wanted to have a long-term extractive, degenerative uh, purpose. They, they want to deliver benefits. And I think, um, you know, some of the old ways of looking at things in a very reductive way that is just about cost benefits and profitability, I think those people know that there's a younger generation who find that increasingly unacceptable. And, you know, who, who would really want to bring up a kid and, and then when that kid is a uh, sort of late teenager uh, to be thoroughly disapproved of by that kid. And, you know, that's, that's part of my motivation. You know, one of the reasons I've committed so much of the last uh, 12 years since I set up Exploration uh, to pursuing these kind of approaches is because I want to be able to look my kids, uh, look my kids straight in the eye um, in another 10 years' time and, and say, yeah, I did everything I could uh, to, to try and make things better. Um, we won't be able to prevent all the negative impacts that are coming our way, but there's still everything to fight for. And, and I want to be able to um, say that to them with a clear conscience. Yeah, absolutely. I actually personally sit in a really funny space where, you know, my parents were baby boomers, but I'm not young enough to be part of Greta's, you know, <laughs> following. So I, I, I kind of sit in a really weird space where I grew up in the 90s and, and was bombarded with, you know, mindless kind of pop culture and was super aware that we weren't doing the greatest things to the world, but also if you were caring about that, you were very, very marginalized, you know, and 
So I'm, I'm struggling to find an identity in, in mid-corporate level where I still need to work and pay rent, but still want to, you know, kind of be part of the change and listening to conversations at the very top about how the old way of doing things was and, you know, how that new younger generation is expecting things to, to happen. And I guess my question is... Um, to, to get to that future, there needs to be a ton of doing things differently. And one of those things is having businesses that you mentioned all working on the same topics. A lot of these things are very, very anti-competitive and they're very reliant on collaboration, whether you're talking about the footwear industry and a company like Vivo Barefoot, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, this regeneration mission we're on is not we are on it. It's we want the industry to be on it. And we already know that there are some people on that journey and I think the way that you simplified that to, you know, talking about that net positive and is it better than it was before you went there is a really good way of kind of breaking it down. How about in the architecture and design industry? Like, do you find that there's an appetite now to have a lot more open conversation around how to design our cities, our communities, you know, our society in a better way? Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, okay. it's been a weird time because for, for some time now we've we've had nearly all the uh, solutions necessary to, to make rapid progress on climate change and biodiversity and so on. Uh, but it just hasn't been happening at anywhere near the speed or scale. And I sincerely believe what we need is a major tipping point um, where the, the kind of frame of what is regarded as politically possible um, shifts a lot. It did shift quite a bit with uh, the climate strikes and, and with Extinction Rebellion. There's a real possibility that the, the pandemic will shift that even further. And I don't want to sound sort of insensitive and opportunistic about it, because obviously there are some people undergoing real suffering at the moment. And clearly, we need to address that as the first priority. But at the same time, um, dis phases of disruption like this can um, open up new possibilities. Um, and I get this strong sense that things are changing very rapidly at the moment. And things that would have been regarded as impossible just one month ago are happening now. So, for instance, you know, Spain has in introduced the universal basic income. I think we're going to completely change the way that we travel and, and do business. I think there's a very strong sense that we just can't go back to normal um, because normal was part of the problem. And we need to, we need to forge an entirely, norm, uh, entirely new normal and try to make a kind of bridge between an immediate health crisis and a looming planetary health crisis of arguably a much bigger scale. And, you know, one other shift that we've seen that's been pretty dramatic is in the attitude towards experts and scientists. You know, prior to the pandemic, you know, governments in the UK and the US and, and so on were, were pretty dismissive of experts and scientists. Now they realize that they have to listen to scientific advice. And I think it's going to be pretty tough of them once, the, once we're worth past the worst of the pandemic. I think it's going to be pretty tough for them to say, ah, well, now we can carry on ignoring scientific advice about climate change. It's funny you say that. I think it's quite ironic because in what I do in sustainability, I quite regularly get called an expert. And it's just the greatest case of, you know, just I just do not deserve that title. I... I've, you know, dedicated the hours that I have in the day to, you know, trying to kind of come up with the solutions. And, and I, I like to call myself the glorified shin kicker. So all I do is just kind of run from meeting to meeting, kind of kicking people in the shins, being like, have you thought about this? 
have you thought about this? <laughs> this is non-negotiable. <laughs> um, and I guess like, I guess my hope, and of course, like I, I hear you when you say, obviously be sensitive to the fact that the situation for a lot of people right now is incredibly difficult. I guess my hope is that, you know, there will be more of a movement around people now that this thing reminded us that we're all connected. And as you said before, like very much reliant on nature and our natural systems. I'm super hopeful that people will get courage out of this. And I really want to, I really want to see a tipping point around courage. I guess that's my, I, I, I kind of check myself because I don't want to say hope because someone else isn't going to do it. You know, we've jumped on this podcast and I'm trying to create a belief now that there's going to be a tipping point around courage because I think the thing mm. sustainability and what you said about it being so reliant on systems um, and systems thinking is that you, you, we can't as individuals fix all of those nodes. We, we have to rely on this cultural change so that every single individual can take that responsibility and apply it to their area of interest. I mean, you're already carrying so much on your shoulders because your expertise at a very deep level is in architecture and design, and yet you're playing in the ballpark of politics and, and you know, um, and business and, and media. And, you know, I think that's fantastic. And I, I really hope and wish that more people, you know, do that. And so I guess my kind of, I'll, I'll wrap up by asking, like, what is your call to action? I mean, the people that will listen to this will be people from all walks of life. So, you know, what is the kind of one big call to action you would have? Well, you use the word courage there, which is, which is a really good word. I've been talking a lot about agency with, with some of my crowd recently. Agency, another way of putting that is, is the kind of capacity to, to bring about change. And I've seen a lot of minimization of agency in, in the professional world. You know, often architects, even very senior influential ones, say that there's not much they can do unless they've got a really fantastic client. Sometimes big companies say, well, you know, there's, there's not much we can do because we're answerable to our shareholders. People in the media say, well, you know, we, we have to just produce what the, the public wants and, and what the advertisers will tolerate and so on. And the problem with that minimization of agency is that it's kind of contagious, to use a slightly awkward word. You know, it, it, it encourages other people to minimize their agency. The good news is that if you flip that, and if each of us tries to maximize our own agency, then it has a positive impact on other people. And that's what I really think we need to do. I read a, a really entertaining and inspiring book recently called Be More Pirate by Sam Conifayende. And at the end of that, he talks about the idea of compound imagination. So with compound interest, you, you see a, a sort of exponential rise. And I've been talking of kind of adapting that to talk about compound agency, because I think if, if we all seek to, to maximize our own agency, we could achieve a kind of compound effect of agency. And, uh, you know, we could, we could be in a state of really rapid and, and profound positive change. And we could come out of this with a, a much better relationship with the living world, a much fairer society in which we look after people better and uh, provide better opportunities for people to achieve their full potential and, and so on. So, you know, there's a lot to play for. And uh, I, I'd like to encourage everyone to see how they can maximize their agency. I love that so much. Compound agency. That's absolutely wonderful. I think you've just um, come up with your next TED talk, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks, Emma. It's about time oh, I did another one. You didn't have enough on your to-do list, did you? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I'll wrap up and just say a huge thank you for joining us. And um, if anyone wants to Been learn more about what you do and you know what you're working on, where can they go? Well, uh, We've got a website, exploration-architecture.com. And the other thing I've been very active on recently is a thing called, it started as Architects Declare a Climate and Biodiversity Emergency. Uh, so we launched that uh, 11 months ago, so in May last year. And we then expanded it to Construction Declares. So we expanded it to other disciplines. And we've been absolutely thrilled with the way that's taken off. Um, so it's now been launched in 20 other countries we now, we're now approaching 5,000 companies that have signed up to an 11-point declaration. And just yesterday, we, we had the first uh, big Zoom meeting with um, instigators in 15 different countries. It was really inspiring and energizing. Wow. That is so I'd encourage any, anyone in the construction industry to, to look up constructiondeclares.com. Amazing. I love it. Yeah, we absolutely will share your message. And, um, you know, we look forward to continue our conversation. Thanks so much, Michael. Cool. Yes. Thanks very much, Emma. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for today. If you managed to get the entire way through this podcast without getting really annoyed by my bloody Australian accent, you deserve an award. For more information and to listen to the other episodes, go to vivobarefoot.com. See you later.